Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I used to love to say, and I haven't said this in a while, but it always sounds great, that if you wrote down the, the 10 things that you would absolutely not want to have or become anywhere near in a business, we had all 10 of them. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. If you're new here, welcome and thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, that is your time. So what do a technology entrepreneur, a musician turned engineer, and a corporate attorney have in common? Well, they built a company in middle America called Tradewind Energy that became one of the largest developers of wind energy projects in the United States and had not one but two successful exits as a team on virtually the same platform. Now, if you haven't heard of Tradewind, perhaps you've heard of Savion. If neither ring a bell, well, you're in for a real treat because today we're going to unpack a story that's yet to be told, at least in public, until this interview, that is. And that is how three unlikely business partners engineered a two-decade run together managed to build two of the most successful wind, solar, and storage development platforms in the world. As Tradewind reached an early breaking point, Matt Gilhausen, Chief Development Officer, and Jeff Coventry, Chief Operating Officer, found Rob Freeman and determined that the business had a future with Freeman at the helm as CEO of the Young Venture. That decision turned into a more than 16-year tenure and more stories than we could capture, try though I may. We do discuss how they built and sold Tradewind to Enel and then Savion, which recently sold to Shell. Along the way, they learned to trust one another, to build a team, find world-class partners to help fund the vision, and find their unique value proposition in the market. As you've no doubt noticed, this conversation was just so good and so in-depth that we are going to break it up into yet another two-part episode. Stick with me. You'll be rewarded. I do hope you're subscribed to the show because that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. You can always check out the more than 485 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com as well. A special thanks to Alex Koval, a Savion team member and Suncast listener, who helped me pull the right strings to bring this conversation to life. You see, Solar Warriors, I do listen when you make suggestions and when you reach out for advice, just like Alex did several years ago. Hey, Alex, I'm proud of you. Shine on. And now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. I often look for an opportunity to help tell the story or the narrative for how founders come up with and develop the model for a business that all of us hope 
becomes successful. Today's guests and a rarity on Suncast, I have three guests today, are three such founders who many of you, perhaps like myself, had not heard of or heard much of before their latest venture, Savion, was acquired by Shell at the end of 2021. I want to give a hat tip to one of their employees, Alex Koval, for helping make this conversation come together. And I want to welcome the three founders of Tradewind and Savion, Rob Freeman, Jeff Coventry, and Matt Gilhausen to Suncast. Good to be here. Hey, Nico. Yeah, thanks for having us, Nico. Well, it is not often well understood the logistical hurdles required to get one, let alone three uh, executives or founders of companies that are actively in the process of producing stuff all in the same place. So I want to thank you all for taking the time and also for trusting the process with us to help tell a story that I I don't believe in this way, at least has been told before. Uh, Thank you, uh, Rob, Jeff, and Matt for uh, the, the many emails back and forth and preparation to get us to this place. There's probably more than we have time to tell in a 60 minute stint. One of the things that I find fascinating is how folks come about not just the idea to build a company, but the team that would found the company. The most recent example of success for you all is Savion. Prior to that was Tradewind. You've got roughly 20 years of entrepreneur experience together. I'd like to go back to the Tradewind days and perhaps through the lens of each of you giving a brief introduction to the listener, we can start down the path of how Tradewind came together. So as I said, by way of introduction, I'd love it if we could just do a little, uh, a little round the horn here. We'll go with Rob, then Jeff, then Mac. Could you just quick, briefly introduce yourself and perhaps give a two to three minute background of how you came to Tradewind in terms of the work experience that led you to the, the idea that you wanted to work on, on wind power in particular? Uh, sure. Okay. So yeah, this is, this is Rob Freeman. I guess I'm, I'm sort of a classic guy that didn't, didn't know what he wanted to be when he grew up until he was 40, 42, I guess. Maybe, maybe that's when it started. But uh, so I, I just had a really eclectic kind of career background that when I look back on it now, actually it, it ended up being a lot of the pieces of the puzzle for me to contribute to the trade win, the trade win startup. But long story short, um, I got an undergrad in geology, uh, went to law school, practiced law for six years um, in, a, in a kind of a transactional practice. Was very unhappy um, as an attorney, knew that I didn't, knew that I didn't want to be a lawyer the rest of my life, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I, I will say that I, unlike I think Matt and Jeff, I had not observed in myself uh, or figured out that at heart I was an entrepreneur, but I didn't know that yet. It sort of is an act of desperation because uh, I, I couldn't find, nobody would hire me in a non-lawyer position. I started a bottled water company in 1991, and, and that was my first foray into the startup world. And uh, sold, the comp- sold that business in 95. Uh, suffice to say that it was definitely a, a pretty hardcore induction into you know, what it's like to, to start and try to build a business for, for four or five years. And then I landed in a, in a utility company, 
the only reason I got hired, I guess, is because they liked the fact that I'd started my own business and they liked the fact that I had a, had a legal background. And they, it was a regulated, global regulated utility business uh, based in Kansas City, but they were, they were keen to start a bunch of different companies on the non-regulated side. So I became kind of right out of the gate, <clears throat> one of the key architects of, of multiple companies that, that, you know, from business planning all the way through launch and, and, and business building. And to just kind of fast forward then, the, the last act there, so that was Aquila Energy, the last act you know, for me was, was starting a midstream business in Europe, which was gas pipelines and um, gas storage facilities and gas-fired power plants in the late 90s and early 2000s. And uh, most of the focus was on building and buying gas-fired power plants around Western Europe. So that was my exposure then to the renewable side. So all the talk in Europe in, in that time frame was around renewables. Yeah. And for context, this is this is the early the early two thousands for listeners. Correct. Yeah, it's basically between ninety eight and 02 that I was I was traveling to Europe, <clears throat> and I was fascinated by the fact that all these advisors, you know, financial players, lawyers, everybody, instead of our dinner conversations being around the projects that we were actually working on, which you know the gas fired stuff, all the dinner conversations were around wind and solar and fuel cells and. So I, I just was really fascinated by it, came back and became really interested in trying to, to help get that kind of stuff going in, in the U.S. And my boss at, at Aquila was, didn't, didn't see that as a, you know, something that was of interest to Aquila. And uh, then, you know, fast forward, I basically found Matt and Jeff through network, a networking kind of an exercise in Kansas City. And these two guys had had already just started, you know, very early days of, of a, you know, a company that was starting to develop wind projects in Kansas. And, and so it was, it, you know, it was kind of perfect. So I jumped in with these guys and then, you know, there, there's, there's a lot to unpack beyond that, but that was the first introduction. That was a, that was fantastic for a huge long career to be summarized in such a con uh, concise package. Thank you. I, I think that we'll probably better understand and see, although you didn't bring it into clear view, uh, I will, the impact that the years you hated as a mergers and acquisitions uh, lawyer, by and large, did in fact see the sort of that, that muscle memory, the, the framework for being able to do all that work at the utilities, doing M&A across Europe. And I'm certain it played a big, pl it played a big role in Tradewind and Savion. Let's move on to Jeff Coventry. Jeff, could you give us a, a similar kind of overview of what led you to a career that was focused on uh, wind and broader renewables? So yeah, Jeff Coventry, um, originally from New Zealand and came to the States in, in 89. Uh, eclectic might be the, <laughs> the, the common theme here in this, uh, this partnership uh, in terms of our our uh, backgrounds and, and how we came together. But I was involved for about five years before Tradewind and another startup. Uh, and, and it was that experience that really kind of gave me the bug for entrepreneurialism. It was, a you know, the dot-com era. Uh, the internet had, had been birthed and um, I jumped in as a, a founding member of, a, of an e-commerce company in Kansas City became one of the fastest growing companies in in Kansas City it kind of rocketed up there's you know 
PR and all that kind of stuff was associated with it and VC money started pouring in and then 2000 happened. <laughs> um, the, the business was, was doing outsourced e-commerce for other companies. So we were, we were the commercial backend behind, hidden behind the scenes of, of other businesses. That was the model. That was kind of a recurring revenue stream approach. Anyway, dot-com crash happened, VCs liquidated, shut down the business and was left, uh, kind of, you know, scratching the head about what, you know, what could have been, what, uh, what was, and it, it, a lot of lessons learned there. I'd say that was kind of my, my business school. Um, I didn't go to college. I went, uh, straight into work out of, out of high school. And that was a huge, huge learning experience for me on a whole host of levels from, you know, fundraising to, you know, kind of management challenges to, dealing with, uh, you know, kind of the impact of VCs and, and how they can completely transform a business, not necessarily positively from kind of a founding vision, et cetera. So post that experience, I was sitting around like, what do I want to do now? And was kind of, you know, looking at biding my time in, in just a, a job that I found temporarily. But at that moment, I began to discover renewable energy and in, in some of the research I was doing. The kind of critical moment, I think, for us was I'd been researching this stuff, and wind in particular was, um, and hydrogen actually were kind of the two things that piqued my interest. And, you know, living in Kansas, we often drive to Colorado to go skiing in the spring. And if you have driven across the plains in the spring, it's <laughs> you're fighting and you're in your minivan with the kids in the back. You're, you're literally got your steering wheel like at 45 degrees against the wind coming from the south uh, half the time just to keep the, the vehicle straight. <laughs> and I remember talking to my wife the whole way out there like, we've got to do something. This There's such a resource here and, you know, we've got to find a way to get into this, um, you know, do something with this business. That's when, as, as Rob said, we all kind of gravitated to the same point through some of the research we're doing, found found each other via connections. And, you know, I'd started to formulate an idea of a plan, but didn't really know what it was. And and through meeting with, with Matt initially, and then um, some others began to see all the pieces come together and just totally jumped on board at that point. Um, quit quit the job I was in, took a mortgage out on the house and to live on and, and, uh, off we went. Matt, do you remember that first meeting with Jeff? I do. I believe the first time we met was in a Overland Park, uh, library conference room. If I recall, we didn't have a, an office or any place to meet. So we, we were meeting in a, in a library. Jeff, I don't remember if that, if that's the way you remember it, but that's my recollection. That was definitely one of, yeah, I, I don't remember the very, which was the first time, but yeah, it was, it was very much a, a boots. What precipitated that first meeting was an introduction by mutual friends. How did you guys actually meet? There was a small uh, group of folks in Kansas City that were somewhat like-minded and trying to, uh, at the time, it was really focused around wind energy um, and trying to make something happen around that technology. And you guys bumped into each other through just sort of that community, getting to know each other. Yep, exactly. Well, Matt, your story and background is uh, similarly not related or tied to renewables. Could you give us a quick overview of how, I think you'll find that there are a lot of us in the solar industry you have found uh, or in the renewables industry, folks that migrate from the music industry or other creative uh, 
artist related industries. Tell me a little bit more about your story, Matt. Yeah, Matt Gilhausen. I grew up in Kansas City, followed my sister to the University of Kansas to, uh, to do what you're supposed to do coming out of high school and, and get your, your college degree. Um, I quickly got uh, distracted by numerous things as young, young kids do. I failed out uh, the first time uh, I'd gotten an opportunity to go crew on a small sailboat that had been sunk in Hurricane Hugo that a friend of mine's dad had purchased. And so I jumped on a plane and uh, flew down uh, to the Southern Caribbean and helped restore this boat, sailed it across uh, the Gulf of Mexico um, to Texas, had a, one of those great young adventures um, that young people hopefully get to have. Ended up um, back in Lawrence, giving it a, a second go at college, and uh, quickly got uh, caught up in the local music scene. I've been a my father was a drummer, and uh, I've been playing uh, drums since I was, you know, and a little little kid. Always want was really interested in music, and had been playing in bands through middle school and high school. Didn't know what I was going to do with that when I got up to KU. Uh, ended up finding some folks to to play with that got a band together that quickly uh, went from just your local college garage band to something a little bit more. We played a, a local battle of the bands, if you will, um, which got us a ticket to um, a primo spot at South by Southwest, uh, the big uh, music and film festival. And this is back in the uh, very, very early nineties. We uh, loaded up the van headed down there and played our show uh, on a Friday night in front of a packed house. Turned out there was a, um, there was a representative from uh, Rolling Stone and representative from uh, numerous record labels, including Capitol Records. Fast forward uh, a month or so later, and we're getting phone calls. We're going to be in Rolling Stone. Capitol Records wants to come see us. Before long, yeah, we were assigned to Capitol Records which was a great, great deal, but um, great opportunity. But as many of these stories go, we didn't end up making a record with them. We ended up getting dropped, which was a, a really, really difficult thing for me. Um, I, I, thought, I thought this was what I was supposed to do with my life, was to be a professional musician. But like most good wannabe rock stars, we figured it was their loss and we tried it again made a couple of records, trying to do it on our own, had a little bit of limited success uh, along the way. At the end of the day, that really ultimately ended up in, in, a, in a failed failed effort. I was working in the trades at the time as well. I was a carpenter, I was a mechanic, I was doing anything to make, make ends meet. And finally, one day I was hanging sheetrock in a building in Kansas City, and I was like, I gotta go back to school. And, and get my engineering degree. So I went to KU, begged the dean of the engineering school to let me into the engineering department for some crazy reason he did. And so, yeah, I, I got my civil engineering degree at KU. Um, all, all the while, for some reason, I've just been interested in the climate and environment. And I'm kind of a motorhead too. So I'm big, I'm into cars, I'm into motorcycles, I'm into anything mechanical. This whole time, I was just thinking, you know, we just keep burning all these, all this gasoline, and we're putting all this stuff into the water. Something just didn't seem 
right to me about that equation. So as I explored my engineering degree, I took numerous classes in uh, environmental engineering. There wasn't much in the way of renewables at that time. All you could do in engineering school was really just get your traditional mechanical or civil engineering degrees. But I took a few extra classes in tropical ecology and biodiversity and studied abroad in Costa Rica and a few places. And, you know, that, that ultimately led me to a job with a small engineering firm in Lawrence, which um, long-windedly, that gentleman, Steve Chapman, was an early mentor for me. He I was trying to tell him when he was interviewing me that um, I really wanted to get involved in renewable energy and tackling climate change. And he said, I'm on board. We'll find a way. This is an environmental engineering firm cleaning, basically doing groundwater remediation. They had a huge project in Oklahoma City cleaning up uh, a bunch of um, groundwater contamination from some uh, industrial processes. He said, come join me. I'll... um, we'll make this work. We'll, we'll get you involved. It'll just take a little time. Well, I lasted like, I don't know, two months before I told Steve, I'm going to go to the AWEA conference in 2002 in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I don't know how I had discovered it, but I had, I had been online and, and, and realized there was this big wind energy conference happening. I begged him to, to pay for the trip and he said, we can't do it. So I just got on a plane, walked into that uh, exhibition hall at AWEA in 2002. And I remember immediately picking up the phone and calling my dad. I'm like, hey, dad, this is, this is what I'm doing. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was there and I was trying to figure out some way to, to, to make a career out of this. There's a lot of bits and pieces of that backstory um, that ended up leading to early investors and, and, and support that helped build what became Tradewind. Well, as we'll discover, it uh, in fact has become not just a career, but a lifestyle and a, and a lucrative one. And that you all have had quite a bit of success uh, in those early days. It's critical for the founding team who in many ways is playing a game of whack-a-mole to begin to parse roles and responsibilities based on who is best gifted at what particular role. Rob, I'll start with you. How did you all determine how to divide the tasks, the roles and responsibilities? Yeah, well, just consistent with your theme of music backgrounds with renewable energy folks. I, I too, when I was in grade school, my, my, my dream was to, be a, was to be a professional musician, drummer. Ringo Starr had the, you know, had the Beatles albums and the whole thing. So anyway, I started drumming also when I was in grade school and, and then through high school and, and, and got away from it. Didn't, didn't, didn't go nearly as far with it as Matt, but, but still enjoy playing uh, to this day. So as far as um, roles and responsibilities, I guess, um, I guess coming in, you know, given, given my background and experience specifically with, with, um, power plant development and acquisitions, albeit in this case, wind projects. I guess I was, I was pro- probably the natural leader, just longer in the tooth. And Matt was, was, was clearly the logical CDO with his engineering background and his, his, his interest in, as he says, in, in all things mechanical, you know, et cetera. So 
And and he was, you know, when when we all when the three of us came together, Matt was already basically leading leading development activities in the very early days of Tradewind. And then Jeff, really, I would say that Jeff and I, in a sense, partnered up and worked on. First, we were working together on origination, uh, developing relationships with utilities in the area, um, and that kind of stuff. And then we 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 at some point pretty early on we realized we we badly needed a, an expertise in trans with transmission in house. And so I actually remember the conversation very clearly. But I went to Jeff one day, and we didn't really have the money to go hire a, a Cracker Jack transmission person. So I, I just, I went to Jeff and I said, basically, look, dude, we need, we need a transmission guy. You're it. <laughs> and I think Jeff probably said something like, I don't know anything about transmission. And I said, well, you're, you're a smart guy. You'll figure it out. And he did. Yeah. So Jeff, Jeff became and, and remained for, for the entire course of, of trade when, you know, really smart on transmission. And then when we hired the experts, you know, Jeff was, was, was always super, um, uh, effective in in really helping to lead those you know that group and 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 all but uh you know one thing I want to say I guess in terms of our our respective roles and I want to kind of start to really kind of highlight this point is so the th- everybody's got our backgrounds now and the three of us came together in in a in a in a totally um sort of fortuitous way and at the time I was 42 I think Jeff was early 30s Matt was probably very late 20s and, and in a lot of ways, very different people. Most people would probably look at, at the three of us at that time and probably say, this, this can't work. I'm going to say this, uh, and I don't mean, hopefully this doesn't come across as, I'm, I'm going to turn this, I'm, I'm, this is a compliment this, that I'm getting ready to, to share. So when I first joined and was, was officially made CEO, we had a couple of angel investors. And at that point in time, when I was, when I was talking to the board, they were board guys, to the board guys, they were questioning whether or not Matt and Jeff had had the right experience and skill sets to to be in the business. And one of the first decisions that I made, and I don't I don't at all mean to make that sound like I'm patting myself on the back. Again, this is a compliment to these two guys, which is why I'm saying it. Probably my very first decision was in in literally the first weeks of of being the CEO was are Matt and Jeff the right guys? Because I was being asked that question by the board guys. And I, um, I was already impressed and, and it was already starting just very quickly to build confidence. I really basically really liked these guys and they had all the passion in the world and they were there ahead of me. Uh, they were, they were the, you know, the actual original founder slightly ahead of me and it didn't seem right somehow to not, you know, let these guys, you know, play the thing out. And so looking back on it, you know, if, if that was, a decision I made. And if I'd have made it gone a different way, these two guys would have gone and done it and been successful anyway. But, you know, we stayed together and sort of bit by bit, month by month, year by year, you know, it, it, this, this thing that was such an odd, odd couple, you know, basically grew into a very close friendship and our different personalities and our different backgrounds ended up being the thing, you know, it ended up, I think, being kind of the magic and we, you know, we'd all had our own experiences and relationships. I had had a partner in my bottled water company, you know, lots of partnering experience, so to speak. And this one, you know, sort of the X factor was, I think, the actual differences in our personalities and skill sets created this 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 puzzle where we had, you know, we had the we had the pieces. So the things that I'm not good at and that I don't like happen to be things that these two guys 
are really good at and they like. And, you know, you could probably say that all the way around the horn. And, and so we, it, it became a very powerful uh, partnership very quickly. And we were all wearing lots of hats. I guess I want to say without, I'll stop with this, that we did officially have titles and we did officially have roles, but we all wore sort of each other's hats. You know, there were these guys, you know, were, you know, clearly leaders in the business. And at times I would roll out and help Matt with some, some issue with a landowner and, you know, or whatever it might be, uh, you could say that about, you know, these two guys. So typical startup early days, we were the first three people and everybody was wearing all the hats and then it really didn't start to develop more formal um, sort of roles and, and, and all until later as the business grew. And, and even then we, it was all committee, you know, all, all by committee, all three of us guys were involved in every decision. So. Yeah, Nico, this is Matt. I'll, I'll say that Thanks for the compliment, Rob, by the way. And thanks for uh, making the decision you made. <laughs> um, Sounds weird uh, to say it that way, but. No, it's true. And I, I for sure, no, you know, I think Jeff and I both understand that. And I, the flip side is, is that uh, we so desperately needed what, what Rob could bring to the table, the utility experience, the professionalism, the legal background, all of that we needed so badly. And, and one of the things that um, I think is really interesting here in this whole story, and I think it's probably pretty common to a lot of successful startups is all it takes is like one, one decent idea and one or two good, smart, hardworking people that are passionate. And you start getting more and more people that want to join it. It's like, wow, how did we, how did we get Rob to join Jeff and I, like how did Jeff and I get together? And then it just steamrolls, right? Not to say it was easy, but it starts to pick up momentum around that idea and around those good, hardworking, smart, you know, people. The other thing I was, I was going to say is that for me, um, and I still deal with this in my, my personal life today, my professional life, this whole thing was super intertwined with my personal life. So when I decided to jump in feet first, you know, I sold, sold my house, took what money I had, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, bought a truck, bought a meteorological tower, started, I was in the field trying to start collect, collecting wind data. I was leaning on friends. I was leaning on my, my boss at the time. He gave us a couple tens of thousands of dollars. And then I, you know, I went to a family friend and asked them to sat in their living room, told them I had, this is a, this is a lifelong family friend that I had grown up with their children. My parents were good friends with them and said, look, I got this idea, got this opportunity. This is what I want to do. And they said, yes. And they wrote our first, you know, six figure check. And I remember I literally went and bought a suit and tie. I didn't have one. I went and bought one to go into this family friend's business. And he sat there and wrote a check. And I, and I think, I'm, I don't think I'm making this up. I believe he upped it by $100,000 on the spot and handed it over to me. So the board members that Rob's talking about being in the boardroom with talking about Jeff and I, those were that, the family, right? I mean, it, this thing is so, it, it just gets so messy, but that's what makes it 
happen. I think it takes a lot of that to get to get there. You just have to jump in and lean on people and uh, hopefully pay it forward at the end of the day, which is what I'm trying to do now. Hey, solar project owners and developers are infrequent field checks in your operations and maintenance plan and oversight. Do you need proper insight? Well, let data drive your maintenance. Our friends over at 60 Hertz are in the cloud so that you spend less time on the ground and their app is a snap. 60 Hertz in your pocket will help bring solar to the socket. You can learn more about how 60 Hertz can help your operations and maintenance plan at mysuncast.com forward slash 60HERTZ. That's 60 Hertz. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. I wanted to hear from Jeff, who, as Rob said, everyone had a title and everyone wore everyone else's hats as necessary. But Jeff, you were, uh, you know, you came into this, as you said in the beginning, with effectively no renewable energy experience, but not not an insignificant amount of entrepreneurial experience. Getting into the power business is not easy to do. Uh, You and Matt had uh, a disadvantage to Rob in many ways. But what for you was the hardest part I'm going to set aside the learning transmission piece, but as you were handed the role of chief operating officer, I'd love to hear what for you in the early days of building the business was the hardest piece of sort of taking that, that stake in the company, the chief operating officer role. Yeah. I mean, some of this kind of emerged over time, but looking back at some of this is pretty amusing um, as, as you think about you know, how the early days began and the, the things we didn't know. I mean, I literally remember the first time I had a conversation with a, uh, uh, a utility executive um, trying to talk to him about a, uh, one of our first wind projects. And he used the term SPP, which is short for Southwest Power Pole. I had no idea what he just said. It sounded like a foreign language. Like, SPP, I was like writing, I didn't even know if it was letters. Like it was just, what was that word he just said? <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of the the level that we jumped into this thing with is, at some degree. But, you know, it was a fast learning curve. And, you know, when you're when you're excited, sometimes what you don't know is, is a good thing um, because you don't know what you can't do. And I think oftentimes in, in established industries, which is why I think the entrepreneurial and kind of innovative edge can be so effective, particularly in, in kind of a paradigm shifting uh, moment in, a, in an is- industry. It's because those that are already there think they can't do things or they're kind of stuck, right? And those that don't know they don't know can kind of come in and move move fast and, and upset things. And I think for me, it was, you know, it was just kind of rolling up your sleeves and and just learn everything you can on the spot, just act and move. You, you have to do as you, you know, learn as you go. You can't just kind of read a book and figure it all out in advance. So it was, you know, just start, you know, reading 
you know, documents on how the, the power markets work and, and try to understand, you know, the, the one that you're in and talk to people and ask questions and, and all those kind of things. We did have some good helpers around us early on that, that were super, you know, beneficial to all of us. So, you know, there were others in the industry that I think passed on a lot of knowledge and, and gave a lot of love insights and all. But so I think for me, most of it began with just the process of just kind of keeping the ship, you know, uh, operating properly with, with, you know, the books and those kind of things. And then a lot of our origination was really actually how the business began with, you know, a lot of the hats we wore. And then a lot of the other operational things emerged over time as we, we invested a lot in technology that became a, a focal point for the business and trying to really make sure we, we solve some of the inefficiencies of, of, you know, paper and <laughs> scratch pads and, you know, people out in the field with, with uh, electronic data. So that side of the business kind of grew over time along with, um, you know, kind of more robust accounting and, and other systems like that. But I'd say early on for me, it was a lot of origination and, and then just kind of basics of, of bookkeeping and, and, you know, marketing and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You were tasked, I imagine, with a lot of the housekeeping, making sure the business is working properly, uh, along with, as uh, Rob pointed out, being the de facto internal expert on transmission because you couldn't afford to hire a, a transmission engineer expert. <laughs> um, right, right. Yeah. Matt, you told a fascinating story about sitting in this person's uh, presence, asking for money, getting this six-figure check. I'd love to know the conversations that precipitated your decision. I'm going to go get a suit and going to go ask these people for money. How did you think about raising capital together as a group for what, right? So when you think about Tradewind as a business, you were going to develop a portfolio of wind energy projects, I presume. How did you decide what you needed money for, who to go get it from, and how you would allocate that money once it was in the door? Early on, I think this kind of gets to what part of what Jeff was saying. We didn't, we didn't know what we didn't know. So either the scope of it, um, we didn't know how much money we really needed. And we were, we were at the time focused on early on a project or two. And, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars seemed like it could get you down the road a little ways. And, it, you know, it wasn't until um, Rob's involvement and uh, some of the, the larger angel investors started to get interested and we were really starting to, it, it was a, it was a very organic, let's try to raise some money to get us down the road a little bit sort of effort. When I was initially taking that first uh, handful of checks, it was super grassroots. That check I mentioned earlier um, that I took from a family friend was kind of the first big check. And then Rob really, with Jeff and I's support, he really led the bigger fundraising efforts that grew over time with additional angel investors and then institutional investors, so on and so forth. So just just to jump in there, this is actually an interesting side of this is because the, the, the very, very early funds, which are very limited and the largest of which was Matt's uh, family friend, were all in the, you know, kind of six, five and six figure level, though this family friend became a very uh, important contributor following that. And there were two other large angel investors that came in before we really scaled up to where we needed to be, which was with a strategic investor which is where the the annual story comes in, but we'll, we'll get to that. 
but the the first large, um, well, the second large angel investor actually approached the business. So it was a Kansas City person that had made some money in a sale of a business and was looking for investments. And so that one actually came knocking on our door and, you know, was interested in renewable energy and, and wanted to, you know, place a bet in, in the space. And, you know, we met with them and it was, it was a strangely easy process <laughs> that, that time around. Um, things got, you know, got more difficult after that. But I think that was our first kind of seven figure sum that came in um, was, was from, from that gentleman. And then, you know, kind of went from there. Rob was really kind of took over the reins at that point on, on the fundraising side. You know, it was a long time ago, but I wonder, maybe Rob, you can chime in here on this. Matt pointed out, we didn't know how much money to ask for. And now you've got this angel investor coming saying, I want to invest along that spectrum as entrepreneurs early on. Did you have an idea of even how to structure it? How much equity to give away? Do you structure that investment as debt? How did you, as a team, what did those conversations sound like around, around the, the board table as, a, as an executive team thinking, okay, right now we own, own the parts of the company that we own, everything that we bring in investment for gets, you know, is dilutive of our equity. How did you think about those answers? And did you have to go out, as I presume many of us probably would, and ask for advice? And, and who was that advice from? You know, I think this is, a, this is one of those critical early uh, entrepreneurial problems that prevent scale, which is why I'm asking it, right? A lot of entrepreneurs just sit in the unknown and they're afraid to give away equity. They're afraid to raise money. They don't know what it looks like to get in that negotiation conversation and how to scale it, right? From angel to strategics, et cetera. Could you talk a bit about that process? Uh, yeah, I guess just to, um, to echo what Matt and Jeff were saying. So the, the family friend that Matt mentioned, he had come in before, before I got there. And then, um, it's interesting. So then Jeff described the, the gentleman that found us. And I actually was sitting in these guys' offices, meeting the, basically meeting these guys for the first time when that, that person walked in the door and handed a, handed a check across the desk. And walked out. The second angel investor. Yeah, that's right. Second angel wow. investor. You guys did and a lot of, of ground laying work before Rob was able to come in and, and take on the CEO role. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Between those two guys, there was, there was I, want, I want to say somewhere between a million and a million and a half com- dollar commitment. Wow. And, and it was just pure seed money. Pure seed money. I don't, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that there was necessarily a business plan at that point. Just just people investing in in your character and- your their belief in you being able to execute on the ideas that you have is that fair, Matt and Jeff? So certainly the case with Matt's family yeah. friend. I think the the next guy that came in honestly didn't know any of us from Adam. Yeah, and it, it was um, um, I you know I think I can probably fair, fairly say this since we're not naming names. It was it was sort of you know money burning a hole in the pocket and thought that wind power looked like you know the next great thing and there was one co- one company in town that was that was making a little noise, and so we we had a uh, we had a business plan that he invested in, but it, uh, it wouldn't be one that we would stand behind today. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> without little we knew about anything. Even in that uh, business plan that you wouldn't necessarily stand behind today, Jeff and Matt, when you were raising that million plus dollars, were you clear about the buckets that you were going to pour that money into? Was it staff? Was it equipment? Was it you know rights of way and leasing? I'd love if you get into the nitty gritty of that, the early 
plays of how you allocated that cash? There's probably a, a shift that occurred, which we can get into. Let me speak a little bit to that period. And I think we should probably also talk about a significant restructuring we did later in the business because everything kind of changed at that point. And, and some of these dynamics changed as well, as well as how much we understood the business by then. But uh, and, and the industry changed. So when, when we began, the idea at that point was that you could potentially uh, project finance a wind project uh, 100%. So you didn't, you could go out, with, go get your contract with the utility, you know, develop your project sufficiently, go get a, a contract with the utility, take that contract to the market, raise capital, go secure your turbines, go get your, your you know, BOP contract, et cetera, and then go build it and potentially even operate it. Uh, long term, and so you you basically how Invenergy got in the space in the in the gas days back uh, way way back when um, that was the model in mind um, when when we began. So the whole premise initially was really based on we're going to get one wind project going, and that's going to kick the whole business off. And so we're going to focus on mostly on you know we'll, we'll put some some towers out in different places, but we we're going to get this one success early on. And that'll launch the business and it'll cash flow kind of everything going forward. Um, that, of course, turned out not to be the case, um, in part because the industry completely changed uh, very rapidly shortly after that period when turbine supply got tight. And everyone started going to these frame agreements, starting with, with FPL uh, and others. And suddenly you, you couldn't do what we thought we could do and you needed big capital behind you. But... Just to answer that question, that's how we initially sold it to investors was this thing, you know, we're going to get, we got an awesome site in the middle of Kansas on a really windy site. We're going to win a deal and we're going to go, you know, make money from that point on. So I guess, yeah, just to, to pick up, I, you know, I, I, um, I, I don't know, Matt and Jeff, if you guys want to speak to sort of business planning and, and financial models and that kind of thing uh, before. I guess the third angel investor came in. I, I can say from from that point, uh, which was literally within months of of when Tradewind was was officially sort of kicked off. I distinctly remember sitting in in Louisville, Kentucky, for a week um, and spending the entire week working on a business plan and you know financial projections for the business. Jeff, I'm sure you were you were involved in that um, with me. That was the basis for. For how we priced the equity in the business for the third angel coming in, and again, local Kansas City guy. Uh, interestingly, maybe uh, his family was a third. I guess he was a third, third generation uh, Oklahoma oil and gas family, and um, he was not directly involved in the oil and gas business with the family. He was the only family member that wasn't, and he was interested in renewables, and so. Again, he found us actually. So I, you know, I hopped on. Uh, he happens to be a guy that owns a couple of planes and flies, uh, flies planes. I met him one morning at sunup. We hopped on his plane and he flew us down to Oklahoma. And I met with the family, uh, which was again a, a you know a very well-to-do Oklahoma oil and gas family, and presented the plan. And and then the investment came in, and uh, that was it. Uh, you know, and again, we, in, in that case, we ended up 
pricing the the equity a little more aggressively with him than the first two guys that came in. I think that probably was a reflection of a number of things. So, I, you know, I'm not sure how much we want to unpack that. And then he was the last angel investor to come in. So we had those three uh, in total. Um, looking back on it now, it was not much money actually for doing what we were trying to do, but we raised between those three guys, we probably raised $2.5 million. And in late, kind of mid to late 2005, so this was a little over a year later, it was becoming crystal clear. Uh, and I'll pick up on what Jeff was just saying about the changes within the industry with needing, basically needing to have frame agreements on turbines. The guys that were, the, the, the companies that were being successful at that point were long, they were long turbines. And if you were a developer that couldn't tell a utility, and it was very much a utility-dominated market, to the extent there was a market, it was very hard to get very far in a conversation with utility executives if you couldn't come in the door and tell them that you had turbines. And so I started making the case with our three angel investors that the business was not going to be able to succeed on a very, very low seven-figure budget uh, or you know, sort of capital base. Uh, it was going to take a whole lot more money to really scale the thing up and that we weren't going to be able to do it with that group. They, you know, they, they didn't have the ability to, to sustain it that way. So that led to, you know, a really critical chapter. And in fact, you know, I, I guess we, we would probably all agree and say that it was the most critical moment in the history of the company that ultimately decided, I think, its success was uh, running a process to either sell what we had at that point as a business or try to bring in a partner. And, and the way it ended up, we brought in Anel. Anel Green Power North America um, as partners. We sold a minority stake in the business to them. Forty, I think it was forty-five percent at that time, and also formed. You know, I guess uh, you know you you would call it a partnership in in terms of how Tradewind worked with Anel. We were we were a development business. They were a construct operate business, and uh, we closed that. We closed the transaction with them and. September the 26th of 2006. So we had we'd been in, sort of in business for about three years, I guess. And again, we were working off a capital base of about two and a half million that whole time. We were out of money. Uh, we, we got a couple of very small loans from one of the angel investors just to bridge us to where we could close the NL deal. And we had reached a point where all three of those guys basically said they were done. Uh, they weren't going to fund anymore. And I think, you know, we, we had a number of these near-death experiences like most startups. Uh, it was definitely not smooth sailing, but we, we certainly almost died at that point as a business and were scrounging with, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars in loans to get us month to month to make payroll. I'm not even sure we were paying ourselves at that point. We, were, we, we had a couple of employees that we were probably prioritizing to get paid, and then we closed the deal with Anel. And then interestingly, though, we so we closed the NL deal and about my memory, Matt and Jeff, is we closed it on a Friday and the next Friday, so seven days later, we signed our first large PPA. We, I think it was like four, four years or more of, you know, scraping by and going through, what, several million dollars worth of, of VC money and failing in, in RFP after RFP uh, and having to go back to the investors and say, we need more. Uh, to get to that point with Enel. The infrastructure that you're building that effectively Enel invested into are actual projects or are they um, 
land rights? What was it that ultimately became the asset that you spent four years developing? Yeah, these were pretty well packaged up development assets. They were they were mature assets. When Anel came in, we had uh, we had an interconnection position. We had all the real estate. We had been it, it was meteorology was solid. So it was I would say investment grade at that point in time. A couple of thousand megawatts, maybe. I mean, a thousand sounds like kind of the number that sticks in my head, but maybe a thousand of real stuff and another thousand of bragawatts. Right. Mostly <laughs> um, Kansas and Missouri, right? You know, one of the, um, one of the most, you talk about, you know, Rob was talking about the moments we almost, almost didn't make it. So our first project that Rob referenced that we, we started, we signed the PPA and started construction just after Nell invested. Um, we were about to sign a 200 megawatt PPA on our second project, right when the financial collapse hit. And I remember literally I was driving home from the office on a call with Rob and Jeff and the guys at Anel. And I remember Anel saying, we're not going to support you guys signing that PPA because the tax equity market disappeared overnight. And it was one of those moments you're like, this is, this is the end again, right? Like, we're so close. This project is the one that's going to actually get us over the hump. And we went another, they didn't sign it. We went another two years before our next project um, hit. But fortunately, you know, at that point, I feel like Anel, they did support us investing in development assets while others weren't. So we took two years to really grow, grow the business significantly. But yeah, letting that first uh, or that second project go was a super tough one. And, you know, the project inevitably got built, but it was a decade later that that project got built. So our, our first dollar of revenue was 08. <laughs> oh my goodness. Six years. What a bitter pill for those who are thinking about development right now and going and thinking, oh, this is easy. It's good times. <laughs> that's why we do. That's why I do these interviews. It's definitely a different environment right now than it was in 2002, but a lot of folks think, oh, I'll go develop a solar project company right now and I'll be in the money in, the, in 18 months. These things always take longer and they're harder than people expect. I used to love to say, and I haven't said this in a while, but it always sounds great, that if you wrote down the, the 10 things that you would absolutely not want to have or become anywhere near in a business, we had all 10 of them, right? Whatever that top 10 list is. I mean, we had no market. We had no customers. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the prospective customers hated us, right? So it was, it was only regulated utilities that were a potential customer, and we were very much a threat. So you can imagine how difficult those conversations were with utility executives trying to persuade them to buy something that they didn't want to buy. And the only reason that they were even having the meeting was because they were starting to get a little bit of pressure. Uh, in the form of, you know, sort of political pressure and or regulatory pressure to do something with renewables. But yeah, there was there was no market. There was no customer. The product was new. The kinks were, you know, the wind turbines themselves were sort of early days, you know, and not and, and then, of course, building a team. I mean, all of it. So, yes, yeah, so we had a long ramp to revenue and we had another major transaction in 2012 that that's worth it's worth mentioning. But the company really didn't hit stride until I would say probably that 
2012, 2013 timeframe. And then, and then that last kind of five, five years before we sold Tradewind in 2019, uh, it, it, it was really rolling, you know, for us. And we can hit some of the, some of the specs on that. I definitely want to come back to those, uh, those inflection points by way of sort of rounding out a bit the team story. Uh, one of the things that I think was interesting just by hearing what you all brought to the table, or what, what I would broadly consider to be transferable skills as someone who worked in the music industry uh, in all different aspects. Um, I, I'm sure, Matt, you can appreciate the role you ultimately took on as chief development officer, which requires you to be boots on the ground, draws a lot from and to be very resilient and to work odd hours draws greatly from your road warrior musician lifestyle, I'm sure. Any parallels that you would draw for your own role, Matt, um, where you were the you were the face of the company to 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 the folks, the farmers, the 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 like asset owners that you guys had to go out and develop these rights of way and develop these large land tract uh, contracts with. How how would you parallel your learning from the music industry to to that role? Yeah, I mean, alternative music uh, and alternative energy. Or, there is a parallel there. I mean, I I, I got. Hit, Thinking about what, what Rob was just saying, I got really accustomed to um, making records and writing songs that people didn't really want and <laughs> playing a lot of empty bars over the years. So I always found that to be an interesting, uh, interesting parallel. Um, I think the other thing that another parallel I would draw or maybe just skill set is that the creative process of writing a record, writing a song, playing music is something that, you know, you learn patience, you learn how to iterate, you learn how to work as a team, you learn how to defer to others. You learn how to, I guess, try to be constructive and honest in your criticisms. And there's a lot of things that I take for granted when I, particularly now, as I'm not working with Rob and Jeff right now, I'm working with some new teams that I, I kind of take for granted about, guys, we're going to work this problem until we solve it. Like there is no there is no option of not solving it. We have to just work it, iterate it until we feel it's good enough, you know? So that's something I feel like I maybe learned in, in the, in the music business, scraping and scrapping along, being a road warrior, um, that kind of stuff uh, for sure. And then I, I did learn some, I guess, more practical skills. You know, when, when we got our first record deal, you know, I, we had to, go find the right legal counsel, you know, and I being the guy that was, you know, responsible for really managing the band, we had to negotiate a significant life, potentially life-changing record deal. So that was my first real kind of school of hard knocks experience in contract negotiation, trial by fire for sure. Uh, I've been thinking about trying to put my hands on that contract. I don't know where it's sitting around, but I, I would love to, flip back through it and see how terrible of, of a job I did. But, you know, ever since then, you know, lawyers and contract negotiations became one of the most exciting and interesting parts of the whole business. And I think Jeff and Rob, you know, we, we all come at it from different perspectives. And I think that's one of the areas that it seems not like that's not very sexy or that's not the stuff that, you know, you want to talk about on a podcast, but I found those transactions fascinating and the art of the deal, putting that stuff together and getting it on paper 
we, it was nonstop for us from the very beginning to the end. And I absolutely love that part of the business. And, and, you know, Rob was, uh, Rob and Jeff were artists at that for sure. And, uh, it was just super fun, um, working through that process. Well, you know, to further the music analogy here, a lot of entrepreneurs try to build a one man band, uh, for as long as they can. Uh, they look like, you know, some version of, uh, of a street performer with a tambourine on their foot and a harmonica around their neck, Bob Dylan style, Bob Dylan style. And I know in the early days you have to do that, but you guys raised, you know, two and a half million dollars. Part of a, a big, big chunk of that was going towards, you know, interconnection permits and all kinds of real fees and things like that. But at some point you have to start hiring a team. At what point were you able to start really hiring to fulfill the roles and what were the early key roles that turned in to turn out to be critical to the success of Tradewind? The first major moves I remember probably would have been Frank Costanza, Dave Kreimer, Rod Northway. So, well, Andrew Landall too, I guess. I, I can't remember exactly when he came in, but throwing out some names, uh, these, these are all people that are, that are known to a lot of folks in the industry now, but some of it was, was me rating the, the Aquila shop that I'd come from on the non-reg side. So all the first three names mentioned were, were those guys. But to answer your question, one was an originator. And so he was our first head of origination. So he kind of took, he took that role off of mine and Jeff's plate. And he was responsible for that, you know, with sort of the, the beginnings of a department. Uh, one, one was uh, kind of a lifelong engineer around power plants and uh, he was working on some transmission stuff, just taking some of that off Jeff's plate, uh, and then also supporting the development efforts. Uh, one of those guys was was a was a developer, an experienced developer uh, that dropped into Matt's shop. And I guess you know part of the story here is keeping in keeping with the friends and family thing is virtually virtually 100 percent of our first six or eight or ten hires were friends, people, cop, former colleagues, people we knew. Matt Matt brought in. Uh, several, I mean, over time, many people that he knew uh, from Lawrence uh, in different roles. Uh, and that, that you know, guys that, you know, probably filled out our slate of like our first 10 key hires were mostly people that we had backgrounds with. How did you think about compensating them, the balance of compensating them when you were trying to put as much capital towards project allocation as you can? Most of them get paid more than we did. I think that was the common theme. Yeah, I mean, we were we were trying to be you know, we were, we, we didn't have any choice, but, uh, to sort of pay market on salary. Uh, cause you know, I mean, people, you can't attract somebody if you're not, we weren't using, um, so we weren't using equity maybe as a way of saying it to attract in our early hires. It was, it was mostly just kind of, you know, straight up, you know, somewhat competitive salary. And then we did have a bonus. We did have a bonus plan that was uncapped that with success on paper, you know, it looked like people could, could do pretty well. The very early hires we had, of course, we had had no success. So it was, it was a, um, it, you know, it was a risk that, that everybody was taking. Um, I think to, to back to a point that Matt made early on, though, in the discussion, there's no question that a lot of these people were hiring on because they were, you know, I think, I, I think they wanted to be part, you know, of this thing that, I mean, they probably liked us and, and were excited enticed by the whole story and that had a, you know, that was probably 50% of why they joined. Wow. Honestly. Yeah. I've, I've found they 
the uh, which is similar in the, in the last startup uh, was involved in as well. But in the the early stage where you're building credibility, it's very very difficult to bring in mature top level talent because people just they don't know you right. So you end up grooming people. You you find really talented people that have some um, some skill set match. I, mean, I think a lot of the people like Matt brought in, like you know, environmental side and field services side and all these kind of things. They weren't wind energy experts, <laughs> but they are really awesome people with really great skills and eager to to jump in and learn something new. And we kind of did that across the board, with a few exceptions of some of you know the more mature folks that that Rob brought in uh, that were probably more, more late stage in their careers, wanted to stay in Kansas City. So it was a little bit of that element too. But I've found when you're building teams, you don't always get the choice of just picking top talent at the beginning. But ultimately, you want to you know you're able to get there later, and hopefully, a lot of the people you bring in early on that that weren't necessarily, you know, top tier talent become that, um, over the course of, of, you know, going with the business and learning and training, which, which actually happened, which is one of the really fun things about, or honestly, one of the things I enjoy most about, um, you know, being involved in entrepreneurial businesses is the, the transformation of human lives and careers that you get to participate in and, and observe. Uh, it's just, just super fun. One of the really interesting moments for me, right when we started really building the team. I remember Rob and Jeff basically getting, getting me on the phone. I was out in my truck, probably installing a meteorological tower or something. And, uh, they said, look, Matt, you need to, you need to find some other people to do this. And this was really with respect to our, one of our key hires we made when we hired our first, uh, meteorologist. So I was doing all the meteorology at the time, working with consultants. And um, they're like, man, you need to make a decision and decide whether you want to come in the come be in the office and work with us to build a team or you want to be out in the field the whole time. And I, I'm one of those guys that it, I'm a little bit of a, a control freak. A little is an understatement. So I, uh, you know, I can't I can't imagine someone else doing the field work or closing that land deal whatever, doing it right, you know? So they, that was a pivotal moment for me that I thank these guys for, cause they like, dude, you gotta, you gotta choose. And, uh, it was a great decision because all the people that we were able to hire from that point forward, now I had people that were, you know, working with me that were experts in their field. They started, we started to get dedicated talent towards each key discipline. And that's when it really started to, to take off um, from the staffing perspective. Um, I, for, I was glad I had done that time in the field because it, it really paid dividends for me in trying to train and manage those folks. Um, but if, you know, it wasn't for these guys saying, hey, you got to make a decision, come into the office. Um, I probably would still be out there, you know, talking to landowners. I mean, in the end, I think when we just were talking about the team, there's, there's not a whole lot of secret sauce in this business. There really never has been. And, you know, I think if we look at the success that Tradewind uh, had, I, there's no question that it, it's pretty much a story about people uh, and the team. And I mean, over time, we grew the team to 145 people. 
but it's a story about the team and and I think that that end sort of ended up being the secret sauce and and it's something that you know thousands of books have been written about and people study and everybody talks about and for whatever reason um probably a certain amount of luck and and also a a certain amount of of being very purposeful about the people that we hired and the culture that we created we ended up with a team that that I there's no question that it was widely recognized around the industry as really as the top team in the country and I, and I and I say that just because I've heard it so many times from primarily on the on the fundraising side you know I was I was catching most of the calls on people wanting to buy Tradewind uh, and invest in tra- in Tradewind for many years and the the constant feedback was everybody recognizes you guys have the best team in the industry. And so you're on, you're number one on, on everybody's list. Uh, you know, call it us when you guys are ready to sell. And, and so it was all about the team. And, and I do think there was some luck involved, you know, again, picking up on what Jeff was saying that a lot of these folks we hired, uh, some of them that, you know, were basically right out of school, had no work experience. And somehow we liked them in the interview process. I think we, we all, I think naturally, wanted to bring in nice people, people that you wanted to be around and spend, spend a whole lot of time with. And I think we were, for the most part, successful in doing that. And thankfully, virtually all those people ended up being amazing hires and, and they all became, in their own right, uh, standout professionals in our industry at what they do. Um, the last thing I want to mention about the team that was so remarkable, and a lot of this was going on, um, in some of the hardest times that we faced, but we saw this sort of, it became very much part of the culture, but we saw this personality develop that I think, you know, maybe the three of us can take a little credit for, but I think a lot of it, a lot of that credit has to go to the team itself because we always talked a lot with the team about how they were responsible for the culture as much as us. It was not something that was sort of handed down to them. But when the going got tough, we would consistently see people make personal sacrifices to help other team members sort of in the trenches on things that in many cases wasn't their job necessarily. It wasn't their project. It was uncertain whether they would be rewarded for it, you know, per se. And and yet you would just see people rally around each other. It was, you know, it was it was an incredible thing to see. And I think that that was the magic. All right, Solar Warrior. Well I appreciate your persistence and the fact that you're here all the way to the end of this part one of our two-part episode. What's your favorite part so far? I hope you got at least one good quote out of it, like when Rob says, all it takes is one good idea and people want to join in. I'm really enjoying the sense of camaraderie among this trio, and believe me, you're going to want to queue up part two because the fun's just beginning. I was also grateful for just how open and honest these gentlemen were about the entire experience, ugly parts and all and particularly appreciate their explanation of the team dynamics and the learning that came with the growth. If you are eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Follow Math, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion we've had on Suncast, along with the social media links for these gentlemen, lots of other articles that I dug up and book recommendations that they will eventually give in part two (laughs) over on the blog at mysuncast.com. Click on the show notes episodes tab thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you you can learn more about them and their offers at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor 
That's also where you could learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they're doing right now. Remember, you are what you listen to. So I hope you'll queue up part two and keep listening. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>